Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Susanna Constantine, and this is my wardrobe malfunction, a podcast about our relationship with clothes, life, and pretty much everything else. This is the final episode of season six. Welcome back to old friends, and hello to new ones. If you haven't heard us before, listen back to our other wonderful guests, including Donna Eyre talking about coat hangers, Ashley Roberts on Goldie Horn. And David Bedil on, oh my goodness, posing chairs. But let's get on to today's guest. She's a broadcasting legend and pioneer, journalist, tireless campaigner, founder of Childline and the Silver Line, patron or vice president of more than 55 charities, and now podcaster of That's Afterlife. She's none other than Dame Esther Ranson and has long been a hero of mine. So to tell you the truth, I was a bit bloody nervous. This episode is another of our two-parters. The second part drops on Sunday. So let's grab the handles, open my wardrobe doors and find out what's inside. Today I am joined by one of my heroes, and and I don't say that lightly, and I'm with Dame Esther Ranson, broadcasting legend and pioneer, journalist, tireless campaigner, founder of Childline and Silverline, and patron or vice president of over 55 charities. How have you managed to do all this, Esther? Well, if you have a look at it, um, most of what you just described has been done by other people. That is my secret. Delegate. Because um, if you have a look at, for example, Childline, which has helped around 5 million kids since we launched in 86. Now, I didn't do that, did I? Uh, You know, I'm totally wonderful and omnipotent and all those things. I'm amused by what you call me because I've had so many labels. I started with Toothy. I, I ended up with Veteran, which makes me sound like an old banger, you know, one of those old cars. Anyway, <laughs> um, five million children have been helped by generations of professionals and volunteers, all passionately committed, all skilled and talented and generous and compassionate and empathetic. So I just sit here every now and then taking credit for their work. And it's the same with everything you described, those charities are all being run by other people. And, mm. and it's the same with my television work. You know, you can't do television on your own. The amount of stuff you can do on your own is fairly limited and um, probably self-indulgent. But they were your initiatives. So it was, you know, you you found, for want of a better term, a gap in the market, um, an area that was lacking. And it was... A, and I think Childline is is probably one of the most um, important organisations to have been set up in this country. 
and then silver line. Well, it is interesting, isn't it? I think it's because um, my training in journalism has all been solution focused. You know, people mm -hmm. came to us for 21 years on that slide with problems. And among the questions we asked was why, why did this happen? And how could it have been prevented? Maybe how should it have been prevented? And that led me to try and look for answers. And when I couldn't find an answer to the secret crime that was child abuse, where only the perpetrator and the child knew it was happening, the idea of a helpline, well, it came out of a helpline that when we were discussing child abuse on that slide, we opened a helpline as we often did with problems that we were investigating on that slide, which you're too young to remember. But No, I'm so not too young to remember. <laughs> it's odd to think that it was launched in 73 and came off the air in 94. So that means 94, 2004, 2014. Nearly 30 years ago, it came off the air. Anyway, we opened this helpline after one edition of that slide. And because children who couldn't, dare not talk about their suffering any other way, rang up the number and talked to us, I realized that the phone has ways of reaching people safely so that they feel mm. they can be confidential, that no other medium has. Mm. And I think that's still true. I think the silver line has shown that too. The silver line came about from your own experience, wasn't it, of feeling after your your beloved husband Desmond passed away, and the loneliness that um, that brings, and you, you know, quite rightly and empathetically realised there are so many so many people going through that, and that's why you set up Silverline. Yes, well, I wrote about it. Um, a friend of mine who lived on his own, alas, has passed away. Uh, bless him, John Pittman, my friend and colleague on um, on Braden's Week, started out together. Mm. When he read it, he said, how could you write like that, Esther? Haven't you too much pride? Because there's a real stigma about mm. talking mm. about loneliness. Also, you know, as we found from the silver line, when people ring us, the two words they bring to us, the two B words, I call them, are burden. I don't want to be a burden, so I don't want to tell my family and friends how I feel. And busy. The world's so busy, my daughter's mm. so busy, my son-in-law's so busy, etc., etc. So it is interesting that the phone is once again a way that people who feel that they can't unburden their feelings or their experiences face-to-face -face with people can do it confidentially if they know that their confidentiality is going to be respected as Childline does and as the Civilline does. Mm. A lot of the face-to-face -face services have found it impossible due to COVID. Yeah. But if you, if the way you reach out to people is via the phone, fortunately, this does not spread infections, this little telephone. Yeah. So we're still able to do it. Our problem is that um, certainly with Childline, we're down to half an, our normal number of volunteers because so many of them are 70 plus and shielding. And mm. so many of them have got other problems in their lives, like they're ill or they've got someone close to them ill. So mm -hmm. Childline really, really needs volunteers. And anybody who's listening to this who has four hours a week to spare, if they go on to our website, you can see how to apply because we'd love to have you. 
Well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do that when I finish this, I'm going to apply because I think it's absolutely fundamentally important and I'm going to apply. Is there a certain age? Do you have to be over a certain age, over 18 or something to do it? We take 16-year-olds. I was quite concerned about that because I thought, you know, listening to some of the stories that you obviously listen to from children who are being mm. abused or neglected might be a problem, but I was roundly informed that not all 16-year-olds are the same and when I met them I realized that I was wrong but the people mm. that we have to persuade are in age UK because they've got an 18 plus rule and uh, the silver line has just become part of age UK so I'm hoping that they will learn from Childline's example because of course intergenerationally 16-year-olds and fantastic yeah works like a dream so there's no reason not to so um, you've had your jab, haven't you, after spending 10 months in isolation with your daughter, Miriam. And obviously with, you know, loneliness it has affected very great, very many people last year, uh, this year and last year. Um, do you now feel, thank goodness, finally, finally people understand Silver Line's mission? Do you think it's brought it to a head? I think um, when we started our lockdown last March... Quite a lot of the callers I spoke to said, well, now they know, don't they? Because mm. you know, they've been suffering this isolation themselves for months, maybe years. And the world mm. didn't really recognise how painful and difficult it can be. But I can't say the jab has made any difference to me at all. Because my view is not that I don't trust one jab, which is all I've had. I do. Um, I trust, you know, those brilliant scientists who've done all the rigorous testing, not necessarily working for Pfizer, but working independently and mm. have found that you get 89% protection after three weeks. But that still leaves 11 people who may actually go down with this horrible illness. And the last thing I want to do is be one of those 11 in ICU taking up valuable space and resources. Mm -hmm. So I'm still isolating, still shielding, still not cuddling my children and grandchildren until such time as um, the numbers have really fallen. Mm. I'm confident that whoever the 11 are, I'm not necessarily going to meet them. This is sort of going off on a tangent, but what I found extraordinary is how we've all adapted so quickly, and especially the younger generation. I mean, I look at my children who are sort of 22 to 17, and they're the way they're managing, I have so much respect for them and how they're finding ways of keeping themselves entertained, not on social media or, you know, picking up a, a laptop or something, and how they've adapted to homeschooling. And, and I, I just find the younger generation generally have been absolutely incredible. And I don't know if you found that with your grandchildren. I'm not sure how old they are. Mine are younger. Okay. Eight five and three and I think they miss their friends terribly yeah I was talking to yeah, but... five-year-old and, and seven-year-old yesterday by this interesting medium and um which doesn't really work very well with them because they have a whole day of zoom home schooling so the yeah. last they want is to carry on in their own time but um they do miss their friends but I'm quite interested in homeschooling because I've noticed that some of the most original and interesting minds have been homeschooled 
Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I was not that I have an interesting, uh, brilliant or brilliant mind, but I was homeschooled until I was um, 13. I think it kind of teaches you respect in a strange way because you're, um, I mean, I spent so much time alone and I kind of drew from nature and my surroundings and it, it made me kind of appreciate all the things around me um, as well as getting sort of some basic form of education. But you, you become resilient and self-reliant, I think, more, more so. Everything depends on your home, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. if you're locked away in some dreadful, violent, unsafe environment, then, of course, you suffer. And for a lot of children in that situation, school is their one refuge. Yeah. So um, we have to be careful. But it's always struck me, you know, Shakespeare has never been bettered. His mm. understanding of human nature, his use of language, his um, classical education comes through in all everything he's written. It's absolutely, obviously, we know he's a genius. But he's never been bettered, and he was writing at the turn of the 16th century. So in all the hundreds of years in which we've assembled so much factual knowledge, so much more understanding of the universe around us, we haven't got better playwrights, have we? So what does that say about our education? It's very good in a linear way. I'm not knocking it. But is it as good as the education Shakespeare had? Mm. Yeah, life. Life. Is life the best form of education? And you look at someone like like Dickens. I mean, I do think Dickens is almost on a par with Shakespeare in terms of his understanding of human nature and being able to... I mean, he he had such emotional intelligence, I think, Dickens, and with the characters he drew and immersing himself so obviously in um, the people around him and society on all levels. I agree. Um, Set aside the way he treated his wife, you know, not all great artists are saints, Mm. but set that aside, he was, of course, a journalist. Yeah. And uh, it um, meant that he had a very inquiring mind. I'm fascinated by his relationship with the Coots heiress. Oh. Um, Because she set up, it's worth um, Googling her, Because she set up major charities, including the NSPCC and the RSPCA and others, um, and Dickens alerted her to good causes so that she could use Really? Oh, my goodness. That's fantastic. So, anyway, going, we've gone off on a lovely wild tangent, which normally happens, but um, I read that you were born in Hertfordshire, but you grew up in New York till you were 10. Only two years, from 10 till 12. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Hertfordshire till I was five and the war ended, then moved to Hampstead, which was the family home, and have more or less lived in Hampstead ever since, apart from the two years I spent in Long Island, New York, which gave me a deep love of America. I loved it. Very happy there. And then three years at Oxford, but the rest of the time, until COVID struck, and now I'm a countrywoman. I'm in the new forest. Heaven, heaven. But don't you feel such gratitude for being in the countryside at the moment, being able to get out and breathe the fresh air? 
I do not take it for granted, absolutely. I mean, my mm. daughter and I, she can only walk for about 10 minutes, but every day we walk about 10 minutes. She's got ME. Mm. Okay. And once again, people with long COVID are beginning to understand how disabling ME is. And then mm. she and I are hoping that one of the few positives that have come out of this horrible pandemic may be people doing more research into the impact of viruses because... ME tends to have been kicked off by a virus in the same way and had an extraordinary impact on your capacity to live a normal life. I mean, she had to give up work. You know, she's, um, and the awful thing is that she's not entitled to benefit because so many people question whether ME is indeed the chronic illness we know it to be. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, Esther, you um, performed with the Oxford University Dramatic Society and became Secretary of Experimental Theatre. Were you very confident um, in your kind of late teens, early 20s? Yes and no. Um, I was quite overweight. And what that did was it made me rely on entertaining people because I knew that I was not attractive the way some of my sophisticated friends were with tiny waists and you know this was the 50s we're talking about Mm. so late 50s so big swirly skirts and you know Marilyn Monroe shape not to me I was more barrel shaped I think I was anyway (laughs) so making people laugh was important and Mm. actually quite a lot of people find laughter as a way to defend yourself against bullies because it's very hard to bully somebody who's making you laugh and making the mm. crowd laugh, sometimes at your expense. And because I did quite a lot of that, um, by the time I got to Oxford, I knew I was not good enough to be a professional actor in any way. So I thought, well, this is my last fling. I've got to do as much as I can because I'll never be able to do it again. So I joined all the theatrical stuff. And in those days, it was quite interesting. I, I have rationed myself the number of times I say in those days so Mm. you can count them if I say it again in those days the previous year was the last year who had done national service so they came to university at the age of Mm 22-ish already with grown-up ambitions they weren't kids anymore Um, national service was quite traumatic for a number of them because the British Army wasn't always well behaved. But anyway, when it came to university drama, they were very grown up indeed. And we used to get critics from national 
papers looking at the student productions, I got my first appalling review uh, <laughs> from, from either the Times or the Telegraph. And we went up to the Edinburgh Festival and gave rise to people like Beyond the Fringe, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett, were just ahead of me at Oxford. I remember Alan Bennett coming to our, um, where, where the Oxford Theatre Group was staying during the Edinburgh Festival and he was sitting on the stairs and he said, oh, it'll never do, you know, it'll never do. And he thought it was going to be such a failure because people weren't getting on particularly well in the team. Jonathan Bentley, Peter Cook, Alan Bennett, Dudley Moore. That we thought we'd better go to the first night to help them out with a few, you know, rounds of applause. And when we got there, the place was absolutely rammed to the ceiling and people were shrieking with laughter and applauding everything. And it took off and it went straight to the West End and from there to Broadway and the rest is history. But that was why I did it. I did it because I'd done it at school and um, mm. I thought this was my last opportunity. Now, clothes, um, did you have any interest in them when you were growing up? Clothes? Yeah, any, or did you have any icons or people who inspired you, your mum? I had a very elegant aunt. My mum was rather well-dressed too. But being overweight, Clothes don't endear themselves to you at all, you know? No. The only time I got interested in clothes was when I started to appear on television and I got someone who was trying to sort out my terrible taste. If it sparkles, I tend to be attracted to it. I remember one series of That's Life. Critics said I looked like turkey dressed up in foil, ready for Christmas, and I did too. <laughs> to go in the oven. <laughs> so um, I learned a lot mm. um, professionally, but I've, I have now regressed i now live in one of three one onesies as i sit here talking to you i'm in my pink onesie i've got a blue onesie and i've got a gray onesie and they're all fluffy and they've all got pom-poms and they're all impossible to have a wee in you know you can get these onesies which i do to my great shame but i i love it i've got a onesie it's from i can't remember one piece i think is the, the name of the company and it has a zip around the bum area i thought i'd invented that i was going to patent that too late, but that is because I go wild swimming, and that's so I take I, I take that, and uh, yeah, it's quite useful. But so you, but you, you might be wearing a onesie, which I'm horrified by, but you still have your pearls, and you've got beautiful pearl earrings, pearl necklace. You're wearing lipstick. You've got your makeup on. Your you've got l lovely hair. How have you managed to keep your hair that because you're blonde? You haven't, there's no grey at all, unlike me. How have you managed to do that? Is it out of a bottle? I've um, inherited my father's hair, which um, never went grey. I didn't realise that until I got this age. So I did once go to Peru, where some, our guide told us that Incas don't go grey either. So therefore, you can always tell in Peru who are the Spanish descendants because they go grey, and who are the Inca descendants, because they don't. So it is a little-known fact that I may have Inca ancestry, but it seems unlikely, doesn't it? But um, I cut my own hair. When I think of the years I must have spent, if you add all the time <coughs> in hairdressers, I saw more. I saw my hairdresser more often than I saw any member of my family, and now I cut it myself. You do not. Do you have a what, with the kitchen scissors? No, my well, daughter has very nice hairdressing scissors. Okay. And you cut it yourself. How do you do the back of your hair? By feel. That is 
amazing. So you don't have to dye it and you cut your own hair. You are like a rose bush, basically, aren't you? You're all natural and um, pr you do your own pruning. That could be that. <laughs> mm, it's fantastic. So you went on to, you decided that um, after Oxford, did your um, parents have any aspirations for you with your, you know, for your life and slash career? Yes and no. Um, my father... I remember when I was about six wandering around with him. I can tell you exactly where I was, actually, in Cricklewood in Northwest Tube. And I said to him, what, what should you do with your life? Quite a big question for a six-year-old. And he said, well, I, I suppose the ambition should be to be educated as long as you can. I said, how do you do that? He said, you go to university. 1946, you see. Wow, yeah female yeah so, so I said which university so he said well they always used to say Oxford for arts and Cambridge for science so I was quite clear that I was not a scientist even at that yeah. so Oxford became my dream so that was an aspiration and remarkable because for many girls if I if you'd asked your parents that that your parents would have said get married and have children okay mm. that was not mm what my father said, nor was it my mother's dream for me either. She wanted, I think she enjoyed grandchildren. I'm not sure she enjoyed son-in-laws because that's uh, <laughs> about her two daughters. Mm. But the great thing I had was parents who were always surprised by anything I did. So there were no bicycles if you get A's for this exam. There were no rewards. They were always amazed by anything I did. And... Mm usually usually quite pleased though I will say that when I went out on the streets on that slide asking people whether they like hard blue paper or soft blue paper is it not extraordinary to think we ever had hard blue paper oh terrible anyway so my mother said to me Esther is that really necessary my friends were quite shocked so I reported back to my team it's interesting in television, people very often quote their mothers, you know, because uh, at whatever level they were, they were, researchers or producers or whatever, they would say, my mum said. Yeah. And that was quite useful because, you know, you can get into an ivory tower situation and only listen to the group around you. And I watch television and I think to myself, you think that's really funny, don't you? And that's why Gogglebox is such a hit, because that actually shows program makers that Hugh Weldon was right when he said you always have to assume in your viewer maximum intelligence minimum information they're going to be brighter than you are because they're relaxed and watching television and you're all tense and worried about making the program but mm -hmm. don't take any information for granted make sure you give them the facts they need to understand what you're telling them and that was then and is now a very good rule of thumb and Gogglebox as I say is Bringing to the, made, the the wide British public what everybody's mother is really saying on her sofa. Yeah, it's so true. It is so true. And I think, funny enough, I mean, I, this is, I don't know if this is true or not, but I find, in my experience, I find it's men and boys who will, um, you know, say, well, my mother said more than the girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Mm, mm. No, that is true. The, more, you know, the wisdom of the mother shows what influence we have that's why 
my son cut the apron strings as soon as he could and went off to boarding school surrounded by boys and men. Winchester College, which is now taking, considering taking girls. Is it? Oh my gosh, he must be extremely bright because that is like the hardest school to get into, isn't it, academically? Always has been. My son is annoying because he never knowingly, in my experience, did any work. But I used to, when I took him to school in the morning, there was always a spelling test I had to mm. do with him. And he infuriated me because he never studied it. He'd, ne he'd never read the books, but he always knew how to spell it. Great bluffer, my son. Anyway, he's mm. now a junior doctor, so um, I'm Very sure he's not, he's not bluffing anymore, I'm sure. Yeah. So um, what was your first um, television role? What was your first job? Were you, did you start as a secretary? Did you start as a researcher? Um, studio manager. What was your what was your first entry into TV? Well, I started as a clerk, which is below secretarial. Okay. Didn't have the skills of a secretary. So you went from Oxford to being a lowly below level secretary. I went from Oxford to being a sound effects assistant. We were called studio managers in the radio, and I did that for two and a half years. And then resigned from that because I realised that anything creative I'd ever done, and when I was applying for jobs, on my CV, it was all stuff I'd done at university, nothing I'd done since. And so I was getting less and less employable, so I thought, this isn't working. So I resigned and did something I should have done way earlier and always recommend to young friends, and that is I pulled a string. Mm -hmm because there was somebody who was at university with me and had worked with me on, on some of the productions I did, whose mother was rather senior in the BBC. And the thing is that judging people on a form, application form or in interview, you learn nothing really, except whether somebody's good at interviews, can assemble enough lies for that application form. But if you if you got a recommendation from someone who has worked alongside you, it means something. So his... Mm. My friend's name was John Spicer, and his mother's name was Joanna Spicer. Don't ask me about anything that happened last week. Oh, I like your dog. Oh, they've got two of them. Shush! Sorry, Esther. It's all right. My experience is that they're always more entertaining moments than when people are talking. But still, <laughs> what kind of dogs? Uh, we have a, a Parsons Jack Russell, who's adorable, a little bitch. And then we have... Uh, um, Italian greyhound called Rocco, who is an absolute moron. He's got one brain cell, but he's hilarious. And we had no idea what, why. You know, we didn't know anything about um, Italian greyhounds, but he was born at the right time and close by. So we now have Rocco. What's the difference between an Italian greyhound and a British greyhound? Italian greyhounds, if, I don't know if you, they're actually a very ancient breed. So if you think of those portraits of the Medici's, Renaissance, Renaissance um, paintings, they are always holding a little whippet-like dog, and that's an Italian great, greyhound. So they're like whippets, but they've got shorter legs, and they're a lot uglier. Oh, basically. oh that's, that's useful to know. Thank you. So now you know, but they are very funny. <laughs> so in 1968, you began a love affair with your department head, Desmond Wilcox, who you later married. 
And um, did he, is that right? I don't know, possibly. Carry on. And you were married for 23 years. And um, when you, I don't know if, if he, my husband, I could walk into the room wearing a bin liner and he wouldn't, wouldn't even notice. Um, how was Desmond with your clothing choices and the way you dressed? Did he have any influence? No, uh, he, he, he dressed very well himself. Yeah. And uh, when I first met him, he was, it was the era of the kipper tie and he had the most amazing kipper ties. They were enormous mm. and beautiful. I remember we went on holiday together and he was dressed in lilac denim from head to foot, <gasps> including a, a matching hat. And as we walked down a, a pier in the west of Ireland, someone walking the other way said, oh, God, no, not here. Anyway, so, uh, but then when we went on holiday to Greece and he was wearing a flowing caftan, the waiter said, paid no attention to me, and said, oh, sir, you are so beautiful. But then Plato was a bit like that, wasn't he? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> he had a great eye for, for a strong sartorial sense, and he was um, very good on the clothes I should wear. He was like my legs. Mm -hmm. He was a, a, a leg man, and he was like my legs. And he always objected if I wore a, a skirt of any length covering up and said, he always, his view was that I looked like a New Zealand school mistress. I mean, no offence to New Zealand schoolmistresses. <laughs> How do you identify a New Zealand schoolmistress? bit prim, I think he thought, and unmetropolitan, maybe. Mm -hmm. They normally had flowers or dots on them and had long, swirly skirts. I liked them, he didn't. But, but I'm sure he liked New Zealand school teachers when he met them, but he just yeah. didn't necessarily think their clothes suited me. That's it for part one. If you enjoyed it, please give us a five-star rating and review us on your chosen podcast platform. Thanks to Esther, to our house band duo, and of course, thanks to you for listening. Catch up soon. Until then, my wardrobe is officially closed. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com style.